West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord, our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my good friends, Brian and Mike. Gentlemen, glad to be back in studio with you, so to speak. Glad to be here. And gentlemen, I got to say, I am looking forward to our topic today. As we discussed last episode, we're going to be discussing The Mandalorian. And has it been out for a while? Yes. Has everyone else talked about it? Yes. We haven't talked about it together, and I've really been looking forward to that. So let's get geek out out of the way. And Brian, I have decided you shall go first. Okay. Well, then I shall go. Um, It's been a little while since Christmas, but I still haven't talked about this yet. Um, I finally got a console. No way. Yeah, a uh, friend of mine at work uh, has been badgering me to play Destiny with her. So I bought a PS4 Pro uh, and Destiny. and Destiny 1 or 2? 1. Okay. She was very insistent that the story is important and I have to play the first one first. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are about 2,000 YouTube videos you could have watched to get caught up on it. But you know what? It's not a bad game. Right, yeah, it's pretty fun. I mean, let me take that back. It ended up not being a bad game. It (laughs) took them a while and and some DLCs and work to get there finally. Right, well, and I had the advantage of being able to just go ahead and buy the collected edition. So I got all the DLC. I can't, I mean, obviously I can tell when plot lines change over, but there aren't the holes that you pointed out when you talked about it before Mm -hmm. visible to me. Uh, Yeah, and it's a a decent game. I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I got a... I got a good deal on the PS4 Pro, the one that does high dynamic range and uh, UHD resolution. Very cool. I got it for the same price as the bundle for the regular PS4 plus games. It was just the PS4 Pro by itself, no games. But considering the games that they were bundling it with were like $10 each yeah. on the market right now, it was it was a pretty good deal. So just out of curiosity, what was the first Guardian you created? What class? Uh, Titan. Same here. I would have figured you for making a Warlock first, but hey, you surprised me. Well, the Warlock is a lot more attractive to me, but I figured that since I wasn't used to the controller and I knew that I was going to have lousy aim at first, that I should take the guy that has lots and lots of hit points. Yeah, (laughs) they can definitely take a lot of punishment. And it's the same kind of pattern that I do with any any other game where I play the the tanky fighter first because I want to get familiar with all the controls before I add mm-hmm. range stuff and magic. So mm-hmm. I did the same. I played a Titan first. Then I grew to love the warlock more. Didn't give one flip about the hunter. <laughs> Not even a little bit. So, but that's See, just that's me funny. personally. Because the hunter was my absolute favorite. No, I don't know. I mean, you haven't played, played it all. <laughs> no, 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 not one minute. We have come to recognize your BS, Mike. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. A lot of people do not. To quote Top Gear, I know your panto voice, and <laughs> and if you had played, I know, I know you personally, and if you had played Destiny, there's no way you would like the Hunter. <laughs> Anyway, so that's been a lot of fun. I just started uh, Uncharted. Uh, Very cool. Liking that a lot. Figured I'd get all the those PlayStation 
exclusives yeah. done since I've been missing them all being a PC gamer. I tell you what, there are a lot of PS exclusives, which I it's enough to almost make me buy a PS4 or a PS5 when it comes out because there are so many. Yeah, you're going to have to sell one of your kids for the PS5, though. I understand it's going to be really expensive. Uh, there are some days it won't be deciding about actually selling one. It'll just be, which one can I get the most money for? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of difficult because, you know, that one comes as part of a set. The other one amuses you. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it changes about every day of the week. <laughs> uh, what else? Uh, Lock and Key on Netflix just dropped in the last couple of weeks. I don't remember. I think I mentioned Lock and Key in the past, the graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Um by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez, and they are just amazing. They really, really got me back into reading comics. Uh, I dropped by the comic shop, and, you know, I always pick up something at random, and so I saw this Welcome to Lovecraft. I'm like, ooh, Lovecraft, that's interesting. Flipped through it. The art looked really good, so I was like, okay, I'll give this a try, and it was it entranced me. It just really captured my attention. And uh, the show, their casting director is a genius because... Almost every actor is like really, really just channeling the characters directly out of the comics. They look like them. They sound like they sounded in my head. It's just the casting is just really, really brilliant in that show. And I don't know if I recommend reading the comics first and then watching the show or just watching the show and then comics later. I don't know. But I, I, I think you definitely should look at both because they're they're both really good. Now, I'm familiar with the graphic novels. I have not read them, and uh, it seemed to me, and I may have misread them completely, but they had a bit of a you know, Lovecraft vibe to them. Mm-hmm. Okay. The name of the, the – it's not the town, but the, the county that they're in is, is actually Lovecraft County in Massachusetts, I think. It's not a real place, but that's what the, the name of the fictional county is. And it definitely has a, a real uh, cosmic horror – background to it but it's not it's not foregrounded it's you don't really get the the cthulhu stuff until really really late in the game um the basic premise is this uh family the the dad gets murdered and they move back to his ancestral home and the kids discover that there are all of these magical keys stashed around the house and each one does something weird and different um and then there's other forces at work, somebody trying to, to take the keys away, um, and they've got to simultaneously figure out what they can do, how to defend them, and who this other other person is. It's kind of warring against them in secret. It's, it's really fascinating. I, I recommend it. Very cool. I'm looking at some of the art online, and it looks, it looks oh, dark, but not, but not like horrifying or anything of that mm-hmm. sort. Um, and it, I mean, it looks wild and weird, and uh, and you say that the, the the TV show is faithful to that. Yeah, it really is. Um, Rodriguez is a really, really highly skilled technical artist. Um, his character modeling is very, very consistent. You can, you never, I never got confused about who was who. Uh, some artists are lazy enough that if they're not like really exaggerating a feature it's it's easy to get characters confused but he doesn't have to go that caricature route um to really keep the the characters looking like themselves um 
and his, his style is consistent and uh, always very well executed. And it's really pretty rare that you're able to take young people, put them on the screen, and have them consistently portray vivid characters like that without going over the top. Yeah, that the kid playing Bodhi is really good. Most of the time you see a, a kid who's kind of precocious and central, pushing the plot along, and he's just kind of obnoxious. He manages to rather rarely uh, get that obnoxious kid. He's He's there sometimes, but just often enough that you're not wanting to like kick him off the screen. And that that caricature is really one of the things that rubs you raw. I, I know yeah. that much. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm still uh, hiding my head in shame for saying that uh, I didn't like Ed in Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> you know what? Don't hide your head in shame. Like, just know that I'm going to come out and say, I loved Ed, and we will walk away <laughs> with two different subjective experiences with a piece of work so mm-hmm. yeah and, and that's and that's totally that. my own hang-up uh that i don't like that uh, character type generally but Bodhi manages to avoid it which i really appreciate and finally i saw birds of prey last weekend i was hesitant about it having seen suicide squad and noting how very lackluster it was i mean it was not terrible it wasn't green lantern bad but it wasn't anything to really get excited over. Yeah, Joy and I went to see that, and I, I summed it up in a meh. Mm-hmm. It was meh. See, it, I, I, I didn't watch the film, but I was, I was watching its, its budget and its, and its box office returns, and I started reading about you know how much of an economic failure it was, and I'm like, wow, I would love to fail by making that many more millions of dollars <laughs> over the budget. I mean. It did as well as what what was it Ford versus Ferrari in terms of uh, in terms of budget and economy. I'm like, yeah, if that's if that's failing, that is that's my new life goal to fail exactly like that. Yeah, the people involved with the film are like laying on the floor crying, like I can't be, can't believe people didn't like my movie. Reaches down, grabs a stack of money to dry their tears. <laughs> so, I mean, I I think it's because when it I mean, let's just name what happens is that when there are female-led superhero movies, there is a different set of expectations for some reason. Um, And I'll let you fill in that for some reason, whatever way you will. Uh, (laughs) And the box office profits don't seem to to have an impact on those for whatever reason that that people have of saying, well, why, what what would constitute a success with this movie? Yeah. And lately, the idea of what success means is really weird. I mean, it shouldn't take a thousand percent return on investment for you to call something a success. Yeah. And yet that seems to be what they're always expecting every time. Uh, like it but, used to be that you, you, you're happy when your money, when your movie breaks even. So you're mm-hmm. not, you know, out a bunch of money, but anyway. Right. But, but these are the days that studios are run more from the boardroom than they are from the aspect of directors, producers, and from a model of creativity. Sure, but if Target's making 200% return on investment on something, they're happy about it. <laughs> right. So finances aside, how did you like the movie or not like the movie? I really enjoyed it. Um, it wasn't like a movie that's going to change anybody's life. It wasn't particularly innovative, but it was fun. Um, they really, really leaned into the the strengths of the actors and the characters that they had. Harley was just as 
batty and crazy and yet utterly brilliant as she's supposed to be. They took uh, Huntress a little bit of a, in a strange direction, which was good because Huntress just by herself is kind of a boring character. But they made her like this utter dork. <laughs> like she's she's got her own level of uh, imposter syndrome where she's she's trying too hard. And it just makes her come across as as really kind of uh, charming in a dorky way. It was it was really funny. Uh, it sounds like that's they, my emotional anchor for the film. <laughs> it's uh, it's unfortunate that she wasn't in it a whole lot. She was kind of in the background through most of it. I, I would have liked to have seen more of her just because she was saying that. I think if she, if there were more of her, it would have gotten it would have been too much. So. Mm. Maybe the decision that they made to have her be background most of the time was the right one. Just because every time she opened her mouth, you're going, what? <laughs> now I'm spacing on the, the cop's name. Rodriguez. Is that what her name is? Santiago? I know the uh, character you're talking about, but I can't think of it either. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a bad uh, oh, search because there's Montoya. a character called... Yeah, Montoya. Uh, Renee Montoya. Uh, a character who I believe originated... <laughs> in the original Batman, the animated series, or was she before then? She may have existed before that. I'd have to go back and look. Um, I know she was, she was prominent in the animated series. Um, and I know Harley Quinn definitely originated there. Mm -hmm. Um, but Montoya eventually in the comics becomes the question, uh, which is a kind of a minor, but really interesting character who like dissolves his own face. So he doesn't have a face. To hide his identity. Which, if you've never watched the Justice League cartoon, which is like one of the many successors to the Batman animated series. Oh, he was great in that one. <laughs> and he, the question was so, so good. He was voiced fantastically by um, Jeffrey Combs. So she she spends the entire movie talking like an 80s cop show. It just so uh, cliche lines. Every 80s cop cliche that you can imagine comes out of her mouth at some point. It's hilarious. Anyway, it was it was a fun, fun movie. The The big fight scene near the end was just really, really entertaining. It's not a movie for everybody. It is pretty rough. It, it kind of follows on from the, the darkness and the adult situations of Suicide Squad. So definitely don't take the kids to go see it. But <laughs> Besides Harley Quinn, does anyone else from the Suicide Squad movie make an appearance? Uh, no, I think she's the only one from that cast. Yeah. Um, the main bad guy is uh, Black Mask, and then, of course, it's got uh, Black Canary. Did I see uh, that Black Mask was played by Ewan McGregor? Yes. Oh, gosh, he was so weird and creepy. <laughs> <laughs> he maybe overplayed it a few times. And one thing I really appreciated about it was that they stayed away from the exploitation angle. I mean, you'd expect that in a movie led by the this kind of oversexed Harley Quinn character and having this all-female cast that uh, it would get a little exploitative. And it, it starts to go that direction at one point, and then the director is clearly making the decision, we're going to show this, and then we're going to show where the line is that we're not going to cross. Uh, mm -hmm. so that you can relax the rest of the movie that this is the line and we're not going any further than this. So I greatly appreciated that, that they uh, they were aware of 
the impression that they were probably going to give and knew exactly how to diffuse that. It makes me interested to watch the show just to see exactly how they so deliberately do that on screen. But uh, because it sounds like it's it's interesting that they're trying to to within the film show that they're not going to be exploitative in the film. And it was it was a pretty obvious scene where if there was going to be woman gets her clothes ripped off, this is the scene where it's going to happen. And the fact that it didn't says, oh, okay, we're not doing that in this movie. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So that's all I've got. Who's next? I'll go. Going back to something you said earlier about a character that you wish would be booted off of a show or out of a storyline or just completely booted, period. I have been uh, catching up on the second season of the Netflix show Lost in Space, which I love dearly. It's been a great re-imaging of the original Lost in Space from the 60s. I've gone at length talking about how much I enjoyed the first season. Second season has been almost just as good. And every single time Parker Posey comes out as Dr. Smith, I find myself wanting to yell at the screen, Space her! Space (laughs) her! I I was there in season one, so... And I was literally yelling that at the screen at the last episode of season one. They had her in in an airlock, and I'm just yelling, Space! Face her. So not because I hate Parker Posey, quite the opposite. I think that she has done a phenomenal job with this character. (laughs) But it's because Dr. Smith is such a psychotic, narcissistic, manipulative, psychological personality. I know she's going to be able to talk her way out of and into anything that the good-natured Robinsons will let her. And as someone on the outside looking in, oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, (laughs) it's been a great second season. My expectations were high after the first one was so good. We get a continuation of the blending of real science with science fiction, of incorporating technology that we have now that can be imagined several generations later, them using it in the future. Uh, There were a couple of moments where I felt that the interpersonal relationships were a little... uh, One thing that the first season focused on was they're a broken family, and over the course of the series, they are knit back together. And I feel there were a couple of times that they kind of ignored some of the headway that they made with the family relationships, and a couple of times that one of the Robinson children were ignored. And I'm like, well, wait, mom or dad or, or sibling, why are you doing that? We just spent a good portion of last season repairing this relationship, about forging something new. Why are you hitting the reset button on this? We don't need any more interpersonal drama created just so we can repair it again. Let's do something new. But that's really about my only gripe. That and uh, Dr. Smith belongs in an airlock, as usual. And... <laughs> not gotten to the final two episodes yet. Life's been crazy and other things have come on that I've wanted to watch as well. So it kind of got put on the back burner. Go check it out if you haven't. And just like I did about a year ago, I'll sit and wait and hope that we get a season three. Gosh, now I want to play Wind Waker again. Thanks, James. (laughs) I'm here to help. Speaking of things that uh, I found that I wanted to watch even more, I went ahead and I pulled the trigger on a CBS All Access membership. And we have been watching Star Trek Picard. Are you enjoying it? it? I'm enjoying it a whole lot more than I thought I was going to. (laughs) 
I went into it thinking, I'll enjoy this a bit. It'll be some nice nostalgia. But then it just kept getting better and better. For all of his trepidation about taking up this character again, Patrick Stewart hasn't missed a beat in playing Jean-Luc Picard. He is so good in this. I had this all planned out in my head how I wanted to phrase it, but now that I'm finally thinking about him and about his character, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. Mm-hmm. Um, and sleep. Those two might be related. <laughs> then would you mind a couple of questions then? Sure. So is the formula with this, I mean, it looks from the trailers like he is going out on his own lone wolf mission for something. I mean, he's working with an android or an alien or some, some woman who's Walk me through the the basic premise here. So for those who have not had a chance to see it yet, who don't have CBS All Access, I should point out, it was a couple of weeks ago, and it might still, but the first episode was free to watch on YouTube. So Yeah, drug dealers let you take the first hit free. I understand how this works. (laughs) (laughs) So if you have not seen it yet, spoilers are ahead. It shows Picard. He has been living in retirement on his family chateau in France with the company of two Romulans who are formerly Tal Shiar. Now, obviously, there's a story there about why they're with him, taking care of him, but I'm not going to tell that here. It's because Romulans hadn't discovered wine, and they think it's awesome. (laughs) That's all it is. It's the two of them in chase lounges just constantly drinking straight from the bottle. But the two characters... Why isn't it blue? It should be blue. It should be blue. (laughs) Um, Their names are Laris and Zaban. They are my absolute... Besides Jean-Luc, they're my favorite characters in this show. They've become affectionately known online as Murder Mom and Murder Dad. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> when you get a chance to actually watching some of it or even like YouTube clips of them, you'll understand why. Picard has reason to believe that. Did you guys watch the movie Star Trek Nemesis? Yes. Yeah, I watched it while I was sick. Forgettable. I'm so sorry. But not forgettable enough. Yeah. Uh, okay. So <laughs> a couple of things that have happened from that movie and also from the J.J. Abrams movie. There was a supernova, which was threatening the Romulan home planet. Data did die. Now, in the years since then, Romulus' homeworld is gone. The Federation was supposed to be putting together an evacuation fleet to get most of Romulus off their planet. At one point, the Federation and Starfleet were using an android labor force. Not like Data, not that advanced, but still an android labor force. The androids one day attacked, destroyed pretty much all of the evacuation fleet, destroyed the Mars Utopia Punitia, and basically set Mars on fire. And now they're chasing the Battlestar Galactica across the galaxy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And they have a plan. (laughs) They did not include the line, by your command, which honestly was a gigantic, (laughs) huge missed opportunity. (sighs) I mean, they're even paying attention anymore. Anyway, Picard was the person who was heading up the evacuation fleet. And in the the outcome of that, Starfleet decided, nope, we're pulling it back. Federation-wide is outlawing uh, synthetic life. Androids, AI, all of it outlawed. Uh, and okay. uh, Picard's like, no, 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 wait. Okay, the fleet is gone, but we still you know, owe it to try to save the Romulans. We can still do this. And like, nope, we're not doing it now. Forget it. There were some in the Federation who didn't want to do it in the first place. And Picard said, you're going to do this or I quit. And he quit. So shows him in retirement years later. 
He comes to find out that this gentleman might have created a couple of uh, biological androids based on data. It would essentially be his daughter's. One of them was killed right in front of Jean-Luc's eyes. The other one is still out there. And so he goes on a quest to try to find this other woman and save her. Well, finally, I'm glad that they're developing the android. The, you know, Data being the un- unique in the galaxy was great mm-hmm. for several seasons. Uh, to have some progression in the storyline some, you know, however many decades later sounds sounds like a positive move. So that sounds interesting. Now, Brent Spiner does make a return as Data not in the series, but in a couple of dreams that Jean-Luc has. Ah, okay. And go back to where I talked earlier where Patrick Stewart hasn't missed a beat. Neither has Brent Spiner. I believe that. He's a talented actor. Obviously, they had to kind of go heavy with the makeup and more to make it look like a moderately unaged data. But the facial cues, his tics, the way he uses his voice, absolutely spot on. That's awesome. Jerry Ryan makes an appearance on screen as Seven of Nine. Is she, I mean, I take it she's not part of the crew, but just that was a okay. cameo. As of this podcast's recording, we've watched the first three episodes. At the end of the third episode, Seven of Nine appears. Mm. Um, Jean-Luc, he's chartered this starship with uh, his former first officer, uh, his other first officer after Riker, a scientist from the Daystrom Institute, who would be the leading AI authority if the Federation had an AI program, and, of course, the ship's captain. They go to this planet. They're wanting to pick up someone else. As they're leaving, they come under attack uh, from a local warlord who is running around in a 23rd century Romulan bird of prey, just like the one from the original series episode was a balance of terror. Really cool seeing a created using current digital effects technology. Mm-hmm. And they're about to be destroyed. Then a second ship comes in and saves them. The second ship gets damaged. They beam the person out. And who appears but Seven of Nine. And when the new ship appeared, did Patrick Stewart say, a la cartoony Spider-Man, my Borgie sense is tingling? And... <laughs> <laughs> no, he did not. He just stood there looking stoic. Until she appeared, okay. until she appeared the music was dramatic as it showed who it was materializing. It panned to him, and he said, Seven of Nine. And it panned back to her, and she said, You owe me a ship, Picard. And then fainted. And then said, As as I would do do if I found myself in the presence of Patrick Stewart. (laughs) I mean, right. She needed a spare spleen coupling, so she came to him. I mean, (laughs) Lucutus has still got some things in there. I I know it. That's right. She just needs spare parts. If the premise is uh, this anti-AI... Have they made any mention of all of the holographic people, like Robert Ricardo's character? They might have in the fourth episode, which has been out for a few days, but we have not gotten to yet. Mm. Um, I'm hoping we'll get to watch it tonight because they showed in Voyager that they've been using emergency holograms, which can grow in intelligence. And, mm-hmm. you know, certainly uh, the doctors did. And they were using a holographic labor force, as shown in Voyager. And in fact, this ship that. Picard has chartered. It's got an emergency medical hologram. It's got an emergency sensor hologram. It has an emergency entertainment hologram. An emergency 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 entertainment. entertainment. An emergency weapons hologram. All of these are programmed to look like the guy who owns the ship. 
except with different haircuts, tattoos, and the weapons officer apparently speaks in Chilean Spanish. I have a feeling you're pulling my leg. Look it up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, emergency entertainment hologram. Ah, <laughs> uh, huh. all righty then. That is not what happened on the show. I guarantee you that is not what happened on the show. But, you know, I'm going to pretend that this Google image search is exactly what happened on the show. <laughs> because Whitney Houston was not on Star Trek. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Not, uh, I will amend it. It was not called the Emergency Entertainment Hologram. My, I apologize. Too late. It was the emer- <laughs> it's the Emergency Hospitality Hologram. Head cannon established. Sorry. <laughs> if we watch Picard and Whitney Houston's not on there, we're just going to be horribly disappointed. Yeah, just done. Okay. Uh, all side chatter aside, uh, I'll give a, a more in-depth review of Picard as a whole as the series progresses. And uh, we'll go a little bit deeper into the the story because there's a lot more to it that I haven't mentioned because obviously spoilers and because I have more things to geek out about. So moving on, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, one of the knife companies that I follow on YouTube called Blade HQ, purveyor of pocket knives, fixed blade knives, outdoor gear, and uh, EDC equipment, they had a sale on uh, some discontinued knives from a company called Wii. Uh, side note, Blade HQ has a fantastic YouTube channel where they do knife banter, interview knife makers, and other various more kind of funny videos as well. And uh, if, you, if you like pocket knives at all or outdoor experiences, definitely check them out. But anyway, uh, Wee Knife Company is a uh, Chinese manufacturer, makes some fantastic knives. The ones they make are usually a little higher on the end than I like to spend on a pocket knife. But they had a few models that were discontinued and went on sale. Uh, one in particular I liked. It came in a variety of different handle colors. I was able to get one on sale for, with uh, taxes and shipping, 180 So I considered that a good deal. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to pull the trigger on it. So I got the Wii 611i. comes in a blade <laughs> steel of S35VN, the part I liked the best was bronzed titanium handle scales. Yeah, I'm looking at that. It looks pretty impressive. That is one sleek-looking knife. Three and three-quarters inch blade. That's good mm-hmm. enough to do a lot of different work. Yep. You've got, what is it, kind of, the blade geometry is kind of a, it's kind of like a Tonto-type style, well, but not it, so severely that it... The blade style is a drop-point tip, and the edge itself has kind of got this cool little recurve that I looked at at first, I'm like, I don't know if I like that. But then the longer I looked at it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do like that. And the one I originally ordered was not the two-tone black and gray blade. It was just the satin blade, no blackening on it. it. said they had that available on their website. But then the day after I ordered it, I get an email from them saying that they had miscounted their stock and they actually did not have it. And so they were going to refund me. And as an apology for their mess up, they sent me a digital code for a $20 coupon. Holy nice. cow. Yeah, so... I'm going to take this moment to shout out to Blade HQ's customer service. Not only for that, but also since they didn't have the satin blade, I went with the two-tone blade. I called them up and said, hey, I just had this issue. 
You guys didn't have it, even though it was on your website. And the dude apologized over the phone. But I said, but I want to get this other one. And he's like, tell you what, you know, I know why you're calling. Let me go make sure we actually have physical copies. Hold on. Mm-hmm. Oh, we, cool. We have to make sure we have them physically in stock. I waited for about five minutes. He came back and said, yep, we got plenty. But he did say, like, I would order today, though. I'm like, doing it right now. Appreciate it. So, once again, fantastic customer service from Blade HQ. Everything about getting a pocket knife, give them a try. And finally, last weekend, some friends called us up and said, hey, you guys want to do a Lord of the Rings marathon? To which I replied, I'm surprised we're not doing a Lord of the Rings marathon right now. <laughs> right. And we did a Lord of the Rings marathon. Uh, they came over to our place about 10 o'clock, 1030 in the morning, fired up Fellowship of the Rings. And uh, we kind of treated the day as like a rolling meal. We had a bunch of food out. And as we got hungry, we just kind of ate as we wished, you know, through breakfast, second breakfast, 11Zs, lunch, <laughs> afternoon tea, dinner, supper, the lot. You know, we were watching these on my old special edition DVD sets. And okay, so you're watching the extended. Yes, hence them coming so early. Yeah. Whew. And we got to the last disc of Return of the King, and it was late. Kids were getting a little gripey, and and also people were starting to fall asleep on the couch. And so, like, let's call it. We'll try to pick up that last disc at a later date. So. We still have four Hobbit movies to watch, plus the Rankin Bass and the Bakshi versions. No, no, we don't. <laughs> we don't. One of the people who was there did ask to borrow my set so that he could start to go through all of the appendices discs. And I said, <laughs> you can, but I'm going to warn you, once you start down this path, forever yeah, will it dominate your destiny. <laughs> Like, there's so much good stuff on those, though. I love behind-the-scenes stuff in movies. Oh, so do I. And this is like the pinnacle of behind-the-scenes content. There's just so much. But it's like I don't want to stop watching them because I'm finding out something new and cool, like, every 10 minutes. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. And it also inspired me to start reading the trilogy again. Because not long ago, I was able to find a copy of Return of the King in hardback at our local half-price bookstore. So now I've got the three of them in hardback. I'm like, okay, uh, now that we've got the trio, time to read them again. Been a while. Nice. And that will wrap it up for my geek out. I have an well, idea. Why case... did I go next? Oh. <laughs> oh, right. We haven't done Mike yet. I'm sorry. if my... <laughs> I'm the one who was saying, like, let's keep this short. Let's keep this quick. And I think I took the longest. So my apologies. Our planning document was in a different order, so I'd forgotten. <laughs> yeah. In the interest of time, Mike, you're not geeking out today. Let's go to The Mandalorian. Um, uh, something that I hadn't originally planned, but it actually fits better than what I had originally planned. I was having uh, some Indian food with some friends uh, over this past few weeks, and I noticed that at the table we had things in the dishes like potatoes and tomato in the in the tiki masala and i like my indian food really spicy and it suddenly dawned on me that none of these things could exist pre-colonialism because all of these things were found in the new world like there was in europe and in asia there were no potatoes there were no tomatoes there there were no hot chili peppers and i started thinking like how how did this happen? How did things get from point A to point B? And how did the food get to be where it was? And oh my gosh, what did they eat in the 1500s? And so 
I kind of fell into a, an internet article and Wikipedia and another article and other paper hole just to find out, like, what did, what did they eat and how did this get to be where it was? And one of the things that surprised me was that when Christopher Columbus was trying to come to America, one of the things, I mean, it's no surprise, he was trying to get to India to bring back some of the goods so it didn't have to go through the normal trade routes. And he could take a shortcut on the back half of the world, which was a whole lot bigger than he had anticipated, despite the fact that the <laughs> Greeks in ancient times say, hey, dude, hey, dude, no, dude, dude, that's not going to, uh, uh, okay, you do you, buddy. And, <laughs> and one of the things that he had done when he landed in the New World was he found that uh, chili peppers were being cultivated and had been domesticated, which, first of all, I think that these are, chili peppers are probably the most evolutionarily ironic food items that we have. The, <laughs> the, the, the spiciness is supposed to be a defense mechanism. Like, okay, this doesn't affect birds, but it affects mammals. So those nasty mammals that tend to masticate the seeds of destruction, they won't eat them. But the birds, they will eat them and then spread them all over the place. This is perfect. Uh, why are the upright mammals eating us? This is okay. <laughs> no, this is not oh, why. This, um, is, this is painful to eat. This hurts so much. Let's, eat let's, more. let's grow some. Yeah, and so they get cultivated, and these things are cultivated and diversified because the strange upright mammals like the defense mechanism burning their mouths. Who would have thought? Certainly not the plant, but anywho. Uh, so... As Christopher Columbus is trying to get to to find black pepper, he doesn't find any in the New World, but he's like, huh, if we just call these spicy things something that sounds like pepper, maybe I can call this mission success. And then <laughs> Europe was not particularly interested. Uh, because if you ever try to get, uh, I don't know, try to get the English to eat something interesting, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Not really. The traditional British food is pretty bland. But it actually wasn't until the Portuguese decided, you know, some of our other colonies in Asia like really pungent foods with some really sharp spices. Why not see if we can sell these and get these things to go elsewhere? And, and they did. And so it was mostly because of the Portuguese trading routes that some of these things made their way to India. And they kind of caught on to the fact that 500 years later, we can't imagine what food used to be before our lifetimes. So I thought that was just kind of an interesting little exploration that I would share with our listeners if anybody out there likes burning their mouths too. So Columbus was looking to import pepper from India, but we wound uh -huh. up importing peppers to India. Wow. Yeah. That's a weird one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always wondered about Italian food too, because... You know, the way we prepare it here, it's noodles, which are Chinese, and tomatoes, which are American. Neither of those things were particularly Italian. Right. I do have a Roman cookbook, like Roman recipes, and it is not Italian food that you'd get in a restaurant, I guarantee you. Interesting. Especially when you let... Yeah, especially when you let the grapes go in that, uh, in that lead and to sweeten things up, that's, that's not... <laughs> There are health codes now. Well, you take, yeah. one, you take one look at that Roman menu. It's like, can you understand it? Nah, it's all Greek to me. Oh, uh, uh, we did that. Okay. All right. Let me take – I need to – I just need to breathe through this and it'll be okay. <laughs> um, 
in terms of geek media, I I had my friend uh, introduce me to My Hero Academia. Yes. And my kids started watching it. And I have to say, like, at first I was like, really, an, a, an anime superhero show? Are you, are you? Okay. All right. Well, we'll do this. And now... And now my kids will say, okay, we have some time together. They'll either say, can we watch Oklahoma Smash? Or can we watch Explodey Anger Management Issues Guy? Um, which, I mean, they're teenagers. <laughs> they That to the point that the show, for those of you who are not familiar, it is a show following the progression of a young man who lives in a world where 80% of the population are given some sort of power which could allow them to be a superhero some of these things are useful some of them are not the top caliber wind up becoming professional superheroes and he's born as one of the 20 percent and has no abilities at all whatsoever but wants to be a hero and studies them and idolizes them until one day he is given the ability to inherit a super powerful quirk but has no ability to control it yet and so this is following his his narrative of trying to become the best superhero in the world and developing his quirk and sort of controlling it himself and growing uh, not only as a hero, but growing as a character. And one of the things I was so impressed with this show is kind of related to what my kids would say, is that they'd say, let's watch you know, Oklahoma Smash, meaning the, like, the best superhero has this battle cry where he will say smash and usually something relating to america before he does it so it's new york smash as he's punching through you know 80 guys at once and they also make reference to this other character with anger issues and that's because the cast that they develop is wonderfully rich and you don't have background characters and side characters you have this wonderful diverse group of individuals who whose progression you are genuinely interested in. So the character development in this show, I think is top notch. And if it wasn't for this character development of a, of a diverse cast, then I don't think the show would really be as interesting as it is. Um, except for Minetta has to be written out of the show. That's, you know, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> there's like, Yeah. There's somebody who is a complete creeper who we all knew in high school. So he's in high school, but still he needs to go six feet under. And that, that's it. No, um, it, It's funny because I, I know that he's put in the show to be cringy, but it's actually made for some good dialogue points. So it's like, okay, pause. If we encounter this behavior, you know, we see that his classmates, they kind of put up with it, but they also kind of address it like, how do you address you know, this this sort of inappropriate behavior towards his banal lust? Anyway, so at least it's it's worth the discussion of saying, how do we address these issues? So I take it both of you have seen My Hero Academia. Yes. Mm -hmm. we I'm actually, trying to keep current with it, actually. I'm waiting for the uh, current season to be dubbed, but mm. who knows when that will be. But when it is, I will enjoy it thoroughly. Yeah, we're, we finished all the way up through all the dubbed series, and my youngest has made it clear. She's like, eh, I don't want to read it. I don't want to, I don't like, I don't like sub. I want dub. Until we got to the last current season, and we saw that it was all subbed, and, and I just laughed. I'm like, well, 
do, do you want it or do you not? Because this is the only direction <laughs> to go. It's either it's either reading or patience. Yeah, the uh, the version that's on Amazon is about two weeks behind, but it is dubbed. Um, but it's not there for free. You have to actually purchase the season. I've been watching it on Hulu, where they have these sub and dubbed versions. But it has the up to the current episodes subtitled. But I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hulu, I think, is waiting until the entire season is done for their dub version for some reason. It's probably the economy of getting the voice actors together on on a back-to-back schedule, but that's well, just no, my speculation. No, because, like I said, the Amazon version is dubbed. Oh, I'm, I'm, right. Yeah, I'm one or two episodes behind, but so they're they're out there. It's just there's some there's probably some contractual thing with Hulu. Probably. So do you prefer the uh, the subbed or the dubbed? I prefer or... dubbed just because I want to keep my eyes on on the art. And the that's generally speaking, I mean if the dub is really bad, then I'll go for the subs. Right. But but usually I I prefer a a dub on most anime. This dub I think is actually particularly good. I mean it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like I'm I mean I've watched a couple of subbed and I can tell that there are some differences, but I don't really feel like I'm missing out on a whole lot. And usually I can tell with a dub like Oh, yeah, you, you had to change something there, didn't you? Ironically, sometimes I watch it dubbed with subtitles on. Uh, yes. <laughs> I do that, too. Uh, so I, I I get to see the difference between the two languages, uh, the difference in translation. And uh, the last thing that's going on for me is um, PAX East is coming up very soon. Actually, uh, by the time this episode is released, I'm pretty sure PAX East will have already happened. It's coming up February 28th. And I'm really excited to go to this. I've got Friday passes and Saturday passes. And uh, I'm going with either a friend of mine or my wife on Friday. He's not been feeling well, so he's not sure if he's going to, to give his pass to my wife. And then that will be her first time at a con uh, if she goes. And then I'm taking my eldest with me again on Saturday. So we usually have a wonderful time together at PAX and it, it's been a great, it's been a great father daughter experience. So I'm, I'm glad that we can, we can share that once again. Are there any panels on the docket that you're looking forward to? As a matter of fact, there are uh, one of them that really is on the forefront of my mind is an examination of religion in the Legend of Zelda. Ooh. And I, yes, I happen to know one of the scholars that was working on that panel. He's the, the same scholar who does the YouTube channel Religion for Breakfast. Uh, oh, yeah. Andrew Henry. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Henry is a friend of mine and he's, I, I love his work and uh, we, get the opportunity. I mean, he's not in town anymore, but we get the opportunity to chat now and again. Um, he's a huge geek and a fascinating religion scholar. And so we not unnaturally have a whole lot to talk about. <laughs> so, so I was excited to see that he was on the panel, but then it turns out he's not going to be in the country and the other panelists are going to be taking over, but still, I, I, I still want to see, want to see the panel. Yeah. I'm not, really familiar i mean i've i played only like i think the first three uh legend of zelda games and the religion wasn't really in the forefront in those i mean it was kind of there you got a sense that there's some kind of religious practice going on but 
no no idea what it was all about. Right. Yeah, they they did a lot in A Link to the Past to even strip a lot of the religious overtones out because there were more in the Japanese version. And then when it was ported over to the United States, they wound up saying, you know, religion is kind of one of those subjects that people don't want incorporated into their fiction. Uh, and especially when it was the 1990s, we're still coming off of the satanic panic mm-hmm. and we're still working with the vestiges of the satanic panic. And so they decided to just go ahead and try to remove as much ambiguity as they could, took religion out of the game. They still have a sanctuary, but it's kind of hard to determine what that sanctum is in A Link to the Past. But they've developed it further out with the Ocarina of Time, with there being goddesses and, of course, Breath of the Wild, where there are goddesses and shrines and uh, sages. But it's it's present in some games and not as present in other games. So they never really get overt with what are the religious practices and what is the religion and how do these goddesses work. And Zelda doesn't feel a whole lot of need to be consistent anyway. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of fertile ground to work with. And uh, I think especially with the ambiguity with Zelda, that, uh, that makes it a good subject for examination. So, yeah, we're just finishing up our baking prep for PAX East because uh, one of the things I will not do is have a $9 convention center hot dog for dinner (laughs) and then have regret for dessert. Yes. So we've been baking. uh, We really don't have a name for these things, but in in Kansas, they had these things called beer rocks. Did you guys ever, were you guys ever served beer rocks in Kansas? Yes. Uh, More common name is pierogi. Okay. We took those, turned them vegetarian, kept the cabbage and the onion, and then added a whole bunch of other veggies and Indian spices, and then have been kind of calling them cabbage curry buns. And they're great <laughs> in the pack because they don't, there's no meat in them. They don't, won't go bad in eight hours in your pack. And they'll fill you up and keep you going. And man, I mean, curry at a convention center. I mean, what, what could be better? <laughs> They remind me of something that Joy would make for us uh, sometimes as a uh, high-protein snack. They also make the rounds a lot at SCA events. They're affectionately known as uh, fighter biscuits. It's a combination (laughs) of of ground beef, uh, (laughs) some bread, like Bisquick, and cheese. Rolled into a ball, baked thoroughly so that they can be out for many hours and not go bad. And honestly, they're pretty tasty. Yeah. We do meat versions as well, but it's no longer a beer rock. It's something else that the German Mennonites would disavow, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) And uh, that'll wrap it up for my geek out. Well, as we said in the last podcast, it's time for us to jump gladly into The Mandalorian. And I found myself rewatching some of the episodes this past week in preparation for this. And man... Just as good, second viewing, third viewing, one of them even, I think, fourth viewing. (laughs) Right, same here. It it did not get old. No, it didn't. As I said in the last podcast, it's some of the best Star Wars that we've had in years. And so let's dive into why many feel that to be true. I mean, I can say this felt like Star Wars to me for a number of reasons, Uh, 
partly because it seems to be built very solidly on the foundation of previously established Star Wars lore without that lore being necessary to understand what on earth is going on. So they have this lived-in, fleshed-out universe that they can draw upon without trying to burden the viewers with the ins and outs of, well, what is the Bounty Hunters Guild? How does the code work? How do bounty hunters get the, uh, get their commissions? And what happens when there's two bounty... Like, all of that is in Galaxy Guide 10 Bounty Hunters, written by <laughs> West End Games. And I was thrilled to see some of the lingo come up. But, I mean, have, have either of you two read that source book? Nope. I'm aware of it, but have not read it. Do you feel like you missed out by not having read that source book? Not even a little. A, a little then, bit, yeah. Really? <laughs> okay, my. For the purposes of enjoying this show, I didn't feel like I missed out because the show did a great job of presenting these plot points in a manner that was easy to understand. And didn't, yeah. it didn't have to insult my intelligence by taking moments to explain it out to me. And because it felt so much like a part of the universe, like Empire Strikes Back, it showed that bounty hunters were a thing in this galaxy. And it also showed that disintegrations were a thing. <laughs> I was shocked. Like, as soon as we saw on screen that disintegrations were a thing, I, Kaja, I think, was messing with something either on her phone or knitting, and there was just this poof of dust and ash and the clothing hitting the ground. And I just said, whoa. Yeah, same like, here. Why? What happened? And then he did it again. And she was like, whoa. <laughs> now, I could have used a little bit of justification for the tracking flaw because that just seemed a little too fantastical to me. I'm going to go with you on that one. See, for me, it worked because I think that if we were going to do tracking down bounties, then it's going to be a almost like a noir show where you where you mm -hmm. sit there and you gather clues and you do research and you investigate and then you track and you follow and you hide and you... And I, I don't want to see that show. And so what you have is just a quick and dirty mechanic that's not supposed to – I don't think it's supposed to work. It just works to drive the story along. Mm -hmm. And people have asked me, how would you stat this out in a game? And I'm like, I wouldn't because that's – it's a different mechanic for a different type of storytelling. It uses the force. <laughs> Which is sometimes That's not used how to... the force works. <laughs> well, there's no other explanation each, for each how one it of works. Those things is full of midi chlorians. See. Oh, 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 oh. Oh. Well, I guess that just happened. <laughs> well, the thing I think that made it feel more Star Warsy to me was that they uh, they got back to the roots of what the original trilogy did and did well. It was heavily, drew heavily on motifs from samurai films. And we had that in the Jedi robes and just the, the story type and structure, the two droids. And a lot of people have compared The Mandalorian to a Western. But, well, a Western is just a redressed samurai film. And so taking that, this is, this is what the original trilogy was. Let's do that again. Not in terms of let's play out the same plot, but let's find those same motifs, that same... Uh, mythological structure and do that again. And I think that's what made it feel like Star Wars to me. And I think the stories are simpler than 
either of the other trilogies were. I mean, mm-hmm. the the prequel trilogy got all mired in politics. Luke and Han were never concerned about politics or high level stuff. They just mm-hmm. pursued whatever was right in front of them. Yeah, they were really simple guys, and they just went forward. And we get that from the opening scene of the first episode. We don't know who this blue guy is in this bar in this ice planet. We don't know who the Mandalorian is yet. We don't know what the blue guy's done or why there's a bounty out on him. We just know that he can either go in cold or go in warm. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I have to say, just the delivery of that line when we hadn't had, I think it was the first thing that he said, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. That we don't know who this character is. He's not said anything. All we know is that he wasn't going to be pushed around. And when he had his his sights on what he was doing, he said, bring you in warm or we can bring you in cold. And his voice just had a wonderful tenor to that as well. Like the thing that I loved about the original trilogy, Boba Fett, was before he was redubbed, he just had a voice like running ice water. Mm -hmm. And there was something of that quality that they were able to bring into the performance here. Just the look of the character screams, don't mess with me. But then the voice backs it up. Yeah. And I was always amazed at his ability to give that steely-eyed stare when you can't actually see his eyes. Yeah. (laughs) Just something about the way he'd turn his head. Yeah, that is one thing that is really difficult to do is to act through makeup and masks. And, I mean, certainly there's an irony there, because if you get into classical Greek theater, that's really all you had to act for the back row is the mask. But now when we're so zeroed in on the close-ups, to be able to convey feeling without words and with posture and looks, let's give props to both Pedro Pascal and, from what I understand, also his, his stunt doubles, who were also a lot of times you know, in, the, in the mask and in the suit to be able to convey so much without being able to see the face was just absolutely amazing. Anything more we want to say about what makes this feel like Star Wars? That covered everything I had to say. I did want to make mention that when you are presented with a galaxy that is as huge as the one we're presented with as Star Wars, when you think about it, over the course of nine movies, I'm sorry, 11 movies, We've actually only seen a very small part of it. And I love that this shows us areas we've never heard of before. We have no idea where these planets are. Never heard of them before. I did like that we'd get some familiar races, but it's giving us something new. But it still feels just like what we had in the original trilogy. That lived-in feel that... These buildings, these ships, they've all been around for a long time. They've got some dents on them, some grime and dirt and wear and tear. That, to me, has been a very important and necessary aesthetic to the feel of Star Wars. And I also think there's something about the way this film was, sorry, the this show was shot that makes it feel like Star Wars. There were so many lingering shots on Mando or on the Sunrise or on these characters with these backdrops that look like they were taken either right out of the original trilogy or look like they were taken out of Ralph McQuarrie drawings. And I thought that those moments on screen were just wonderful in establishing that this was Star Wars. Now that you mention it, the editing style, because modern 
television editing tends to be a little bit quicker cutting, but this one did linger on shots longer. It was it had a more kind of 1980s cinematic feel to it. That hadn't really been conscious in my mind until you mentioned that. Speaking of artwork styles, one thing that we saw the character of the Mandalorian and we saw that disintegration rifle that was on his back. Oh, yeah. Uh, you boys, you've seen the holiday special, right? Yeah, I had that in my notes. I forgot to transition them over into, into the working notes for the show. Yeah. No, I have never actually watched it, no. In the oh, holiday special, man. there was a cartoon where Luke is trying to find Han and Chewbacca. And this was the cartoon, actually, that introduced Boba Fett for the first time. Right. And he had a rifle attached to his back. This rifle is obviously the source material for the Mandalorian's disintegration rifle. Right. It even has that cattle prod feature on it, if I remember correctly. It does indeed. Yeah, you should definitely check out Star Wars Holiday Special Cartoon. You don't need to bother with the rest of the special because it's weird and it's bad. <laughs> as long as we're on it, we should point out that Life Day does get a mention in the first episode of The Mandalorian. You're right. Yeah. Yes. It, it's a to that. Like, uh, but I, I will tell you, there is no need to, to ride that bucking Ronto all the way to the end, <laughs> even though I did. But the cartoon I... was definitely watchworthy. I'll, I will content myself with uh, I will content myself with looking at the Darth and Droids rendition of the holiday special. I have not watched that. Are you familiar with Darth and Droids? I am not. Oh my gosh, you'll love it. Okay, so Darth and Droids is a screen cap webcomic, and the premise is that Star Wars never existed. It was it was never a movie. It was these people's role playing game. Oh my gosh. And they start in the Phantom oh Menace gosh. and go all the way through it with, and all of these different characters are characters in the role-playing game. And it is wonderful. It's so funny. Okay. That I will have to it, read. It is legitimately funny. I followed it for a long time. I kind of forgot about it, but no, it <laughs> it is great. While they were waiting for the, the new trilogy to be finished, uh, they had gotten to the end of Rogue One and didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't know where it was going to go. And so they're, uh, they did this interlude where every Sunday they've been posting screen caps from the holiday special. And that's been their most recent adventure. Um, I don't know if it's by the same people, but they also did a screen cap D and D campaign webcomic about the Lord of the Rings. Right. The, the ghosts and droids was inspired by the DM of the ring. Yes. The DM of the rings. Also a good one. Okay, so back to The Mandalorian. Right. (laughs) When I was watching this with my wife, uh, she had kind of asked the, I mean, it was kind of a rhetorical question, but I think it's one worth discussing. She's like, so are The Mandalorians an entire race of foundlings? And I think the show does a wonderful job of answering that later on, that we know that foundlings are important. Mm -hmm. And also later on that it's the statement, it's not a race, it's a creed. But elsewhere in Star Wars, it is a race, but now it's a creed, and what's you know what's going on with this? They do a great job uh, of exploring the planet and the culture of the Mandalorians in the Clone Wars cartoon. But mm-hmm. if you've watched that, and then you also watch Star Wars Rebels, and then watch The Mandalorian, 
you're still going to be presented with a lot of questions. Right. And there's a huge gap in between the end of Rebels and the beginning of The Mandalorian, which there's time for for things to happen, uh, for things to change politically, to, to change culturally. And I think that this is, first, one thing that this is showing a good distinction between a a race and a culture or ethnicity and culture. We see from earlier in Star Wars lore that there is a planet called Mandalore. There was a people that had a warrior culture. And at some point, that warrior culture waned to only have a few adherents on an entire planet. And at one point, I think that as a whole, the planet was pacifist, despite this warrior culture that was still in the minority. Um, but by the time that we get to the Mandalorian, it looks like the the people that we know as the Mandalorians, like these people in armor, were all but wiped out under the Empire. All right. Well, they were almost all but wiped out, even in Clone Wars, because I think if I understand the history correctly, what we see as the Mandalorians here in the Mandalorian are what would have been the Death Watch terrorists mm-hmm. in the Clone Wars. Right. I see the Death Watch as... They knew that their people had a a warrior history, and they were trying to reinvent that. I didn't see the characters in The Mandalorian as a continuation of the Death Watch. I saw them having, you know, the same idea as the Death Watch, but executing it in a different fashion. Because maybe the the more true conservative aspect of the religion instead of the mm-hmm. uh, uh, fanatics. Yeah, more of a um, more like an orthodox version. Right. Because if you remember from the cartoon, the Death Watch never had a problem with taking their helmets off. I don't remember. I, I haven't gone back and watched it again. <laughs> they just released the first episode of the Clone Wars Season 7 on mm-hmm. Disney+, Plus, which we also got. Yeah, I'm assuming you guys do, too, because that's how you've been able to watch it. And, yep, it's more Star Wars, Clone Warsy goodness. Well, I think it's also really interesting that there's kind of two ways to talk about this, and and I don't know how deep we can dive in this, because I shouldn't have been, but I was a little bit surprised to hear the religious language. I mean, granted, I know that Mando says, weapons are my religion. I I assumed that that was, that that was hyperbole, like there isn't an mm-hmm. actual religion, that this is a, this is a binding creed, that this is a a culture creed that this is important culturally, but is is the creed of religion? And here's the can of worms that I just opened. I asked the question. <laughs> well, uh, how deep in that do you want to define what is a religion? There is, and I think there exactly is the problem, yeah. is because even religious scholars have a very difficult time defining what a religion is without either opening up the floodgates to things that are obviously not religions, like political affiliations, uh, or there's actually, if, if you watch Religion for Breakfast, they have a video, Is Coke a Religion? <laughs> and, I mean, it, it's tongue-in-cheek, but what they do is they take the definition of one or two religion scholars that use and use their definition to describe religion and then say does coke carry these this checklist does it does it is it adequately described by this definition and the answer in the video is yes by this definition coke is a religion which obviously it is not so it means that 
religion yeah. is that definition is is flawed or has shortcomings and so religion is so nebulous mm-hmm. to to try to define it and some of you may be listening and say well there's no deity well neither is there in some segments of zen buddhism but that's pretty clearly a religion the only other religious example that comes to mind is the jedi themselves in star wars that is mm-hmm. um well and the sith i suppose and the mandalorians have specifically in the context of the show set themselves up as saying the jedi sorcerers are our enemy now we don't really know what the disagreement between the two groups was but if it was religious in nature there could be an, an awful lot of religious practice and religious belief here that we're just not being given because they are a very secretive people and not given to uh demonstration one of the things that did show up that doesn't get talked about a lot in star wars war in tales of the jedi number five uh, the source of that disagreement was revealed that the mandalorians insisted that coke was a religion and the jedi disagreed <laughs> and they were all pepsi drinkers huh except for the the death watch they drink dr pepper <laughs> Well, now we know what your affiliation is, James. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that we have this this weird affiliation that is obviously, in, to some degree, cultural. I mean, there is there is cultural training here where we have a, is it a religion? Is it a culture? They describe it as being a creed that is made up at least of this particular sect of Mandalorian, which is different from other segments of, of the Star Wars lore. And I think it's perfectly consistent to have different sects of this creed or religion or whatever it is that seems to be multiracial. Mm-hmm. The, that Smith that was working the Beskar, that helmet was pretty heavily implying that this person was Zabrak. Yet we are pretty sure that Amando himself is human. I'll be honest. When I saw the helmet, I didn't get that impression. Oh, okay. Because I looked at it as a more ceremonial helmet um, mm. instead of a a, uh, a practical helmet. And now I have to look up what she looks like. <laughs> now, while there are horns on there, they're not in a typical style of a Zabrak. She might be. She absolutely might be. That just didn't scream it to me. Because just because there's horns on the outside doesn't mean there's horns on the inside. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I would that's, say that's that my absolutely... I would say absolutely there is no functional reason, if you are a Zabrak, to have your horns fit perfectly into the little nubbins on your helmet. Uh, <laughs> James is a heavy fighter. You would know why you do not want something that is perfectly form-fitting as a helmet, because that will hurt a lot. <laughs> I mean, I – and granted, these are different subjective interpretations of the, of the media – uh, but you know, my impression was walking away is like, oh, this is this is showing something that is multi multiracial. I completely agree with you on that aspect, though, because they talk about the foundlings that he himself talks about how he wasn't Mandalorian originally. He was a foundling taken off of who knows what planet. He's taking this weird little green thing as a foundling. Right. And she didn't have right. any any objection to that at all. Yeah, not one moment no. of hesitation. Much less than and he I did, think, even. Mm-hmm. Right. I think this is one of the brilliant parts of the storytelling of this show, is that the Mandalorian is is inclined to take in this child 
for a very different reason than we as viewers are attached to him. Because we see, and I'm, and I'm going to stick to my guns on the name here, we see Baby Yoda, and we, <laughs> we are emotionally attached to this character for three reasons. One, we liked Yoda. Two, it's so cute. It's all eyes. And three, what isn't all eyes is all ears. Oh, I want to touch them. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's, that's, why, that's why we're attached to that character and why the Internet went crazy. But that's not why Mando is, is interested in this child. There is a foundling, and he is creedally bound and also personally, emotionally connected with the foundlings of Mandalore mm-hmm. and the Mandalorians because he was a foundling. Mm-hmm. So he's got his culture and he's got his personal history while we have the cuteness factor. And so we have two different points of buy-ins that make the show work. I also liked that on two separate occasions, they make mention of supporting foundlings in the first episode. And then the episode where he gets that mother load of Beskar and both times he was asked, what do you want to do with the excess? Give it to the, you know, let it sponsor foundlings. And, and that's something that is accepted happily and looked upon approvingly by the armor and everyone there. Right. You know, the excess of this will make, will sponsor many foundlings as it should be. This is the way. Yeah. Here's a question out of left field, since we're kind of in the vicinity of it. The Mandalorians, they have this creed where they never reveal their faces to another living thing. What do you suppose that does in terms of their value of physical attractiveness? I mean, it meant that I would have had a much better time in the dating pool. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because you said he's not motivated by the fact that Baby Yoda is cute. Because Mm. the way he was raised, you don't ever see another person. Mm -hmm. You don't make any judgments based on what some someone or something looks like. Yeah. Well, it had me thinking about what does the helmet do to the individual's sense of self? Mm-hmm. Because it's implied that they have a very, very strong sense of community in helping each other, in helping the foundlings and helping the next generation. So what does that mean for the individual person? Like, we don't even know what his name is. I mean, we're told he's the Mandalorian, the only other name we're given is the nickname Mando. That's been it. Whatever identity they do give he... it to us. They do give it to us in the very last episode. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because the moth knew. Yeah, and we don't care. I mean, as viewers, we get the name, but we don't care because yeah. he's Mando. Yeah, because whoever that person was, he's no longer it. And the only differentiation between them is based on their deeds, how much and of their armor they have, and whether or not they've got a sigil on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think it's an interesting question. What does it do to the self? Uh, because I think that the question is highly revelatory, more of our culture than it is of Mandalorian culture, because we are a highly indivis- individualistic culture mm-hmm. that cares most about the individual over and above other functional communal units. And that's something that we do struggle with a lot of times as individuals and especially as say like Christian culture or Christian subculture, where we have a lot of tension between the 21st century American individualism and the communalism that is described in the old and new testaments. So I think that that's, I think that's a wonderful set of tensions to explore. I I don't think that we can do that fully here, Mm -hmm. 
But I think that the more direct answer to the question, what does that do to the sense of self, is that it grounds the self in the creed and mm -hmm. to the culture. They are Mandalorians. Speaking of culture, we were discussing earlier, is this like a, it's this own sect or orthodox sect of it. It got me thinking, I wonder if this is a specific clan of Mandalorians, because it was established in the Clone Wars that there were clans of Mandalorian families, but that hasn't been brought up yet in this show. And whether it is or not is not really important, but I mean, it's not going to detract from it or really add to it that much. It, it just made me wonder, is this a more orthodox clan of Mandalorians who, besides adhering to a more martial way of life and not taking the helmet off, but is also open to adopting outsiders or alien species into their culture. I think that's one of the brilliant things that makes the show work is that they don't give us the answer to that. And mm -hmm. the three of us have to sit here and do that work on our own. Agreed. It doesn't have to tell us everything right off the bat because it doesn't need to, because we would much rather have the story presented to us as the show moves on. And I think I'd rather have the discussion than the explanation. Yeah. <laughs> As usual with us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess another question about the show, if we're ready to move on. Yeah. Does the show do anything new? I mean, I say yes and no, because the the experience that I had watching watching the show with my family and my friends was uh, my friend Sydney in the episode The Child saw what was what was going on at the beginning of the episode and said. If Baby Yoda saves his life, this is a lone wolf and cub show. And mm -hmm. it turned out, A, he did save his life. And uh, Lone Wolf and Cub is a, I believe it's a manga or a comic series. It's a, it's, it's a series of stories that was first written in the 1970s where this samurai was separated from his family. I believe that his family and master were killed. And it's him and his three-year-old son as he's going out seeking revenge. So there's this tension between this helpless son or sort of helpless son and you know, this, this samurai warrior. So you have this father, father and child in this set of dangerous scenarios. And it turns out, A, she was totally right. This entire show is Lone Wolf and Cub. I, I can't speak that it follows directly any storylines, but the formula is definitely there. Mm -hmm. And when I was watching the episode Sanctuary, we were just a few minutes in, and these bandits were raiding this village, and this woman and this child were hiding under a basket. And I said, sweetheart, in this episode, the Mandalorian is going to get hired, and he's going to drive off the bandits. And she said, how do you know? And I said, because Akira Kurosawa said so. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, we saw it coming, but did we mind? <laughs> no, Not I would thankful. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that you, the advantages that you get when you have these stories that are so well-known, they're myth, almost mythological themselves, is that you get to see something about the characters. You know what's going to happen in the plot. You know, okay, we're going to train the villagers, we're going to drive off the bandits. But you get to see, well, how does Cara Dune respond to this? How does Mando respond to this? What is the the effect of being in this community on these characters. And that's what we really care about in it, because we know what the, the, the plot's going to do. 
but it's the characters that we care about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's something we've said over and over on this podcast. It's not about doing something new. It's about doing it well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this show is so full of tropes. You know, the, ah, oh, curse your, what, what? Curse your inevitable uh, betrayal. Yeah. Ah, curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Like, <laughs> we have that in the gunslinger. I mean, we, we knew it was going to happen, but it it does it well as an exploration, as you said, of the characters and, and the scenario. And, and, and I was all in. The gunslinger a little bit less than most of the episodes. That one didn't really grab me as much, mm-hmm. although I love seeing uh, Ming-Na Wen. Agreed. Yeah, yes. that, of the eight episodes, that one to me felt like the weakest one. Mm-hmm. Even though it had a return to Tatooine, I felt like it was leaning a little too hard on the nostalgia and a little less on characterization. See, I I had a different experience of that episode. While I don't think it's the strongest episode, I I thought that it had some absolutely wonderful moments and that we do get to see we do get to see Mando being being kind of unconcerned about about the problems of others unless they become his concerns. You know, it's like, well, it's not about the money. I just want the prestige. And they're like, okay, so I get the money? All right, there's no other way to get my ship fixed, so I guess I'm in on this. Because when mm-hmm. he sees the puck, he's like, good luck, enjoy yourself, um, and for whatever's <laughs> rest of your life. And when he's on the mission, he's like, okay, at that range, the Beskar was able to take the shot. But I don't have Beskar. Nope. Sucks to be you. <laughs> exactly. I did like the moment where he tells him to stop. He's like, why? Because there's sand people around us. I don't see any sand people. They're right there. Camera pans over. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell them yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah. I. So I love the moments of that show. I don't, I, as I said, I don't think it was the strongest, but I, of course, I'm kind of hard pressed to say what is the weakest episode. Yeah. It's, it was high quality pretty much across the board. What do you think is what is Miyazaki's worst film? I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> better better than a lot of people's best films. Yeah. Well, since we're asking, does the series do anything new? I'd like to talk about the tech for a moment. Uh, have either of you watched the the featurettes about their live set CGI? No, no. I have not watched any. Of oh the, my uh, gosh! Extra material. Okay, so what they're doing is. They build just the foreground of a set, and they're, they're, almost all of this is in studio. Uh, they're not going on, on location for very much of it. And they've got four big LED panels, uh, three on the sides, the back, and, the, and overhead. And they're so bright that they actually light the set with the CG displayed on these panels. Oh, my gosh. And it responds in real time to the camera's movement, so you get actual parallax as the camera's moving around, and you get real reflections of the CGI on Amanda's armor. Uh, oh my gosh! And they can actually like they can change the time of day. They can they can move the sun around so that they get him lit exactly the way they want with the actual environment that he's standing in. It is really cool. I am having so many feelings right now, and they're all different <laughs> kinds of excitement. <laughs> It's an expansion of the stuff that they did for Rogue One, uh, where they had the the starship pilots and this big light rig moving around them to to make it look like they're flying around. But it's been simplified and industrialized to the point where they can use it in, well, the Mandalorian's not really a 
television level budget. It's more of a television show being done with a feature film budget. Mm-hmm. But they are doing, you know, 10 hours of this instead of, hey, we've got to build this for a one-off uh, two-hour movie. But it's it's really, really cool technology, and I'm hoping to see it uh, make its way out into more productions. So it allows the actors to, to react to the CG that's supposed to be real, and then they, I mean, I'm assuming that, that they strip out the LED projections and, and use the real CG when they're compositing the film. Uh, by and large, yeah, I think that's what they're doing. Um, they do have a problem where they can't ever get the background in razor-sharp focus when they're doing this because you could see the phosphors. So that's why so much of it is in really shallow depth of field. For anybody other than Mando himself, they can probably do they can do this like green screen punch out in the center, uh, where mm. just the area around the character is green screen, so that you can get a good key, and then you can do your CG replacement. But with oh. his character in particular, because he's wearing the reflective armor, you can't do that. So most of what he's done, I don't know if they're actually doing a lot of roto, or if they're just taking what they shot directly into the edit. I imagine they're they're taking that directly into the edit a lot of the time, but they get to see you know okay, here is the big monster that you're going to be fighting, and they can actually project it life-size like right in front of them. Like, oh, that's a mudhorn. Okay. Yeah, well, a lot better than, okay, pretend to be scared of this really shiny ball for a little bit, and <laughs> right. we're going to go from there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, in terms of what else this story is doing that's new, uh, I think that one of the things that's so remarkable about this is I think that Star Wars has never been so low stakes. Mm-hmm. And kind of tying back to what you were saying last month, James, uh, that you wanted uh, Jedi Fallen Order to be a a big story in a small universe, and instead they went they went big. And in terms of the stakes that are that are set in the show, there's nothing that's a galactic level threat. Nothing mm-hmm. is going to blow up the galaxy. Yeah. Nothing is is going to destroy a planet. And, Luke, Leia, Thrawn, the Emperor, whomever, they don't care if this prisoner escapes or if he dies. Nobody cares in in the in the newly forming Galactic Senate whether this village is stomped on by an ATST or if it's able to continue yeah. to continue shrimping. Yeah. Yeah. Half of the episodes in this series was spent either trying to find a place to lay low or find cash to fix his ship. Yes, or an egg to fix his ship, whatever. <laughs> right. And I think that what, what makes this work is that, I mean, at least for me, I get sometimes exhausted watching something like, I could not watch as many hours of Marvel movies in a week as I watched The Mandalorian, because mm-hmm. I just kind of get exhausted with, okay, now this is going to destroy New York, and then this is going to destroy the planet, and then this is going to destroy time, and then this is going to destroy space. And then it's like, okay, I, I get yeah. it. It's it's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been thinking that about film in general for a long time, that we need some lower-stakes movies, because if the end of the world is always what's at stake, that's just, yeah, you, like you said, it gets tiring. Yeah, And occasionally, let's be honest, it hasn't been done as well since Independence Day back in the 1996. <laughs> I have yet to revisit that film since the 90s. So was it was it really good? Let's ask Retro Rewind. No, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> I see. Retro Rewind 
rates Independence Day a, a unanimous classic film. Yes. Retro Rewind number 16. <laughs> <laughs> Is this going to start happening every podcast of ours? <laughs> Hey, look, when they stop being when they stop producing quality material, we're going to stop doing this. That's 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 it. Oh, I mean, okay. we have a flexible content show. So, yeah, sometimes other people's show is the is the media we get out to. And I'm not ashamed. Fair enough. So I I really feel like this just had some wonderful areas for emotional connection and for personal drama, partly because this with the low stakes any of these narratives could go either way, and we yeah. don't know because it doesn't matter on the large scale, but it matters because of our emotional investment. Speaking of things that you don't see very often in any show, whether it's a TV show or movies, when's the last time you watched a series or a movie where the protagonist gets beat up so much but yet keeps getting back up afterwards? Daredevil. Good point. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I Except, recently watched Cowboy Bebop, so, I mean, that's... There you go. Yeah, but my point is, they're very few and far between. Mm-hmm. We right. can name a couple of examples because we're giant geeks. <laughs> but, yeah, the opportunity for the protagonist to lose, even losing at a, the entire episode, which I don't think Mando ever did, really, unless you count the first half of the, the finale. Mm. Um, but in a show of this sort, if he loses, he's not. He's probably not dead. He can get up and he can try again next week. And I think that is a, a way of getting more drama, a way of getting more tension from the audience. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that sort of model is something that worked for for like Cowboy Bebop or Firefly, uh, you know, other space westerns. Uh, <laughs> is that is that yeah they they can go down, but then they do get back up. Mm-hmm. Cowboy are. Bebop's case they lost more than they won yeah <laughs> yeah but just like in those shows occasionally somebody does fall down and they don't get back up which adds yeah. some gravity to it i mean case in point let's look at the character of uh Kuil, i think is his name the ugnot farmer yeah yeah which that, which, that oh my wife got so mad at that mm-hmm. episode because i think that was her favorite character yeah well and i think that it's also it's it's also brave of a show to take those emotional connections and then show that there is actual loss in these confrontations. Mm-hmm. And it's so yeah. easy to give the satisfying end, but no, sometimes sometimes the people you do get attached to don't make it. Yeah. I was not expecting myself to get attached to IG-11. <laughs> I thought he was just going to be a one-episode hit. Then he comes back reprogrammed as a nanny droid. I was kind of disappointed that he had been destroyed in that first episode. So, so was, yeah, was I. the first one. And I was delighted that they brought him back. It was a great source of levity. And it took him away again. Don't worry. There's only three bad guys. Good. Wait, there's four. Activating self-destruct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we keep mentioning individual moments, but what were some of y'all's favorite episodes or favorite moments from The Mandalorian? Well, my favorite was The Prisoner. A lot of the the time we see, like, Mando's skill is kind of off-screen or in the dark. But in this one, when he's, he fights those droids, we get to see him in full view, bright light, just going at him. And the versatility of his weapons use, uh, the way he used his, his little grappler, both in combat and to get out of his cell. And then the, the conflict between his code of finishing the job. He's going to do 
do what he was hired to do, but he knows he's going to get betrayed. You can you can feel it the entire time. He he knows that these people aren't on the level with him, but he's still going to do the job. And then when it comes down to the scene with the, the Republic Guard on the transport, you see what he really values, that he's not going to let them murder this guy, even though he obviously doesn't have a hard time killing people when he feels like that's the thing to do. But he's not down with them just killing an innocent. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed how, for more than half of this episode, you knew what it was. It had a very kind of Ocean's Eleven vibe to it. Like like the heist. The heist. You've got the droid pilot, the muscle. You've got the infiltrator, the gunman. And then you've got Mando, who's got his own skills as well, and also provides the getaway car. And they're all playing their parts. And then the betrayal happened, which, as you said, Mando knew was going to happen. They knew it was going to happen. We knew it was going to happen. That poor rebel soldier who got killed, he knew it was going to happen. Everybody did. (laughs) But as soon as it does... The style, the tone of this movie shifts hard, and it goes from Ocean's Eleven to Predator, as in a beautiful stylized sequence of events, you see and don't see the Mandalorian hunting down each of his betrayers, one after the other, and the way that it builds the tension, it's almost Batman-esque. In some ways, it it borrows from horror films, like when you have the flickering light. The monster and in the house. Yeah, and he's sneaking up behind Mayfeld, and he's sneaking up behind Mayfeld, and then Mayfeld turns around and he's not there. And then he turns around again, and there he is. Like It's almost like that, that jump scare moment, mm-hmm. even though it's not a jump scare, but it, it borrows those same elements. And it was I thought that was brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's a great inversion of the jump scare because we're really rooting for the monster in that case. <laughs> we are. Yeah. I had some real affections for that episode. When I first watched it, I had to watch it piecemeal, so I I didn't really get to have the same experience that probably you did. I had watched it in three sittings, so I I walked away with not feeling like it was the strongest episode, probably as as a result of that. But Mayfeld really connected with me because I'm like, oh, how many times do we hear an awful Boston accent on the screen? And you, Mayfeld, (laughs) you... You make me feel like you are from Space Boston. I mean, <laughs> thank you. Like, I, it really is one of my pet peeves where you have a TV show and the cop is like, I'm a car and have it. Like, no, no, nobody talks. Yeah, they talk like that, but they don't talk like that. I mean, you're, you're <laughs> obviously doing a bad job with your accent, Coach. Go to Keanu Reeves in Dracula and get your, get your Boston accent from that, that accent, Coach. <laughs> Because you're not cutting it. But this guy, I'm like, okay, this is so natural. And I, I mentioned it to one of my friends. Like, I didn't hear any accent in that. I'm like, yeah, of course not, because you hear it all the time. Go back and listen to his accent. And then he came back and was like, oh, dude, you're so right. He is from Space Boston. <laughs> uh, and I actually looked up the actor, and he's from, he's from Canton, Massachusetts, which is, which is in you know kind of on the periphery. But it's, That's close it's enough. Here. It was probably just yeah. his yeah. accent. And he went to Emerson. Yeah, this is this is his accent. And I'm like, yes, this is amazing. <laughs> Something else that made me give a little geeky squee about this episode was at the end where the uh, three X-Wings jump in from hyperspace, tracking the prison ship's tracker. Anytime I see X-Wings on the screen, I'm like, <laughs> They yeah. are a little uh, 
trigger happy there. They didn't bother trying to find out what was going on at all. Not up, one bit. Blow them up. Yeah. <laughs> they could at have waited first, for the gunship the... to get out, blow up that, and then... But no, they just blew nope. up the whole station. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, at first I was thinking, because as we were getting, as we were getting close to the, to the end of the episode, I'm like, wow, yeah, I guess they just took out a civilian station for, like, because the tracking beacon was there. No questions asked. I'm like... Uh, you know, I'll bet you that gunship probably was the thing like that got them to stop asking the questions. Like, huh? Well, it's got a home and destroy uh, tag on it. They're launching a gunship. That, eh, that couldn't have been me. a home and destroy tag though, because it was on a Republic prison transport. You wouldn't want to hit the uh, the emergency button knowing that the X wings are going to come in and blow you out of the sky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, I mean, that was the purpose of that thing, Either wasn't that, it? That said, or in those years after the Battle of Endor, the Rebellion slash New Republic's gotten really draconian in their practices. Apparently. Yeah. Well, they, they said that if that if that beacon goes up, a uh, a New Republic fighter team shows up and vaporizes you. And so that was wow. them being under the clock that what whoever was in that ship was high value and asset enough that that was their... That was their last-ditch mechanism. I would have expected to come in with another troop transport, land on it, and retake the ship, but I don't know. That I, would be what the New Republic pro- yeah. the headcanon accepted <laughs> and the dramatic tension of we're all going to die here. Right. An episode that I'm just going to go ahead and say is my favorite is one we already mentioned. It was Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Besides introducing yeah. the character of Cara Dune, who is quickly becoming one of my favorite Star Wars characters. Uh, right. This episode had a lot of wonderful personal moments. Going back to what you said earlier, Brian, yes, is the defending a town against bandits a trope that we've seen many times before? Absolutely. But like you said, we get to see how this character acts and how they respond to the situation. We got more explanation to the lore of the Mandalorian about the helmet, uh, wonderful personal moments, uh, wonderfully acted out by everyone. And one of my favorite parts was they made at Estes scary. Yeah, you, almost a monster. Yeah. Well, when you're just like a batch of like 30 people or so living in a shrimp village, a bunch of bad guys with blasters is going to be scary. But the fact that they also have the Star Wars version of a tank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I mean. It doesn't matter. Infantry and small arms are in for a bad day when armor comes rolling in. I and really appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciated the way that that gave something for the superheroes to really do that was a, a threat mm-hmm. to them personally. Because a lot of yeah. times in this story, you've got, okay, maybe you've got a really good swordsman that the samurai has to go out and fight one-on-one. But that's an achievable thing. Mm-hmm. An Imperial Walker, no way. Yeah. And I love how the hero's first response is completely 100% practical upon learning that the bad guys have a walker. It's not, okay, they have a walker, here's what we're going to do. Nope, their response was, we're moving. Mm-hmm. Can't live yeah. here anymore. Time to go. Wonderful bedside manner. <laughs> <laughs> I also liked the way that uh, they gave Cara Dune the glory for when the, when the plan went south, she was the one who came up with a new solution. Mm-hmm. Instead yeah. of in most shows of this type, the main character is the one who's always coming up with the plan. He's the one who's always solving the problem. And the fact that they gave it to the side character instead, I think, made it a stronger and more believable thing. And it really showed that she was somebody to be respected and feared come the end of the thing. Yeah. 
one problem I did have with this episode uh, was why didn't they just go ahead and sabotage the walker when they snuck into the bandit camp? I had those exact same thoughts. And my little bomb on a leg actuator, the problem's over. (laughs) He did. I think there was a throwaway line where he said that nothing we've got or nothing I've got will touch that walker. So maybe even that little charge wouldn't have scraped the armor, but I don't know. I mean, part of what making the AST scary was that Return of the Jedi showed that all it takes is some teddy bears and bits of wood (laughs) to take out a scout walker. And they've got blasters, a disintegrator rifle, and little smart bombs. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't really undersell the Ewoks because, remember, they ate all those stormtroopers. That's true. They did. But instead (laughs) of finding the walker and neutralizing it, they essentially blew up the bandit's beer tent. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I had thought about that, like, the third time I was watching. Like, you could just go and steal the keys and drive off. But right. uh, I think that, I mean, if we were doing this as an RPG session, that would be that would be what we would do. <laughs> well, again, it would ruin the narrative, the, the, though. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know what? This could open up a whole new direction for the show. Imagine like an 80s movie poster has Mando and Cara Dune sticking out the top of the walker, arms up in the air, woo, in the style of Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's going to open up a whole new direction for the series. Yeah, this this episode is also probably my favorite, and I, I can't really quite put my finger on why. I mean, it had some great moments, like a, when they had the, again, the TV trope of both people have guns pointed at the other person's head, and it just ends, so you want some soup? <laughs> like, it just, <laughs> it it worked. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I thought that this was just the emotional resonances were just right. It gave you just em- enough tension, and it gave you just enough respite that I thought this was one of the best episodes. And I'm really intrigued by, I don't remember her name, but the, the woman in the village who turned out to be a really good shot. Just like, yes. Yeah, what he, is her background? When he asked, yeah. can any of you shoot? And Omera was her name. Omera. Everyone's looking at each other except for her. She's staring straight ahead and raises her arm. And then she goes on to prove it wonderfully. Yeah, she doesn't just show she can shoot. Like, she dead-eyed destroys that pan with a blaster rifle. So, again, I think this is another one of those things that the character, even the side characters, uh, even the NPCs here, they have history. (laughs) And we're not privy to that history, but they're living in the history. Mm -hmm. So we've talked some about our favorite moments, which there are a lot. Uh, Were there any more we wanted to point out before moving on? Guess not. Speaking of young people's reactions to Baby Yoda, I have someone here who wants to state why she likes Baby Yoda so much. So I like Baby Yoda so much because he's um, cute, first of all, and also he has magical powers like Yoda, and he's like one of my favorite characters of Star Wars. I have spoken. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, my God. Okay, um, why don't we just kind of wrap this up with what are the unanswered questions that we have about this series? Well, I thought that there was some unanswered question about Gideon's relation to Mandalore because of his possession of the Darksaber, but then I realized that I must have dozed off at some point because they had this whole conversation about him being the governor of Mandalore, so mm-hmm. that I, wasn't really an unanswered question at all. 
<laughs> There's still some gaps there, though, because even though he was an imperial governor, the you know the dark saber that he had was still a pretty treasured item. That, and how did how did he get his hands on it? I mean, unless he he killed all of the warrior culture of Mandalorians and took it from them. The last time we see the dark saber was in the fourth season of Star Wars Rebels. The Mandalorian character Sabine Wren had it. And she and her fellow rebels were on Mandalore fighting against an imperial presence and trying to convince the clans to stage an uprising against the Empire. Uh, That's the last we saw of it. And, of course, this was years before A New Hope. So we have a large space of time between then and The Mandalorian, which takes place, I think, about three years after Return of the Jedi. Oh, really? uh, Yeah. I thought it was eight. I thought three. I could be wrong. I don't have an opinion. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. It looks like it takes place nine ABY, so, which is... I'm sorry. I misspoke. Five years after the fall of the Galactic Empire. Yeah. Okay. So we got to both be wrong today. Hooray! <laughs> Nobody gets any points. So all that to say, there's a lot of time that passes between the uprising on Mandalore to Gideon possessing it. Right. And I think it's probably... It seems really plausible that the most important treasure of the planet would wind up in the hands of the imperial governor there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if he was able to successfully subjugate that mm-hmm. that arena, so that makes sense. Now, this is the day and age of Disney filling in the gaps, so I'm sure we'll get some more information about Moff Gideon at some point in the future. Oh, yeah, I mean, they're already filling in with things left by the sequel trilogy. We're getting a, a graphic novel, Palpatine and Love, so we can know where Ray comes from. <laughs> That's going to turn out to be the only one that is actually telling the truth about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I hope I'm not. All right. (laughs) Another unanswered question that I have about The Mandalorian is who wanted Baby Yoda dead? Because we know that the Imperial bigwig wanted him captured alive if possible dead you know that that works so long as we can extract the necessary material as they say but the ig unit was hired by the guild for a termination run so if the initial arrangement was for the child to come back alive who wanted it dead was there somebody who was trying to work against the imperial interest and wasn't able to follow through themselves or what you know what's going on So in my own headcanon, I had it that the Empire learned that there was this Force child. Now, this is also the time that Luke Skywalker is going to be in the middle of rebuilding the Jedi Order. So they would know it. And a Force-sensitive baby of the same species who was the Grand Master of the Jedi Order for hundreds of years, that's not something you want him getting a hold of. So their first order, you know, would have been have it eliminated unless it could be safely brought to us, in which case we'll study it. If you can, great. If not, kill. And I think that goes to another. It's not in the it's in the text, but I think it's in the subtext is what do they want with Baby Yoda? And clearly they weren't intending the child to to need its crib anymore. They discarded that. They were saying, you know, extract the necessary material. 
my assumption is that the empire is trying to clone, or at least this particular imperial is trying to clone him. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe clone or... certain traits from him. Or perhaps this was actually Palpatine working toward his own uh, resurrection still, and he wanted something from the child to make that possible. Ooh, you bring up an excellent point. We can't look at it in in a vacuum of the Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. I mean, there's there's elements, obviously. They set up the Force healing in The Mandalorian so that the fans wouldn't be crying foul when Rey did it in Rise of Skywalker, Yeah. which I thought right. was a brilliant move. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they really emphasize that hard to you know, watch watch this before you go to see The Mandalorian. So that's that's what's in my head canon is Palpatine's working, he wants something. He wants mm-hmm. uh, But if he can't get it, then eliminate it. Mm-hmm. Which is very Palpatine in nature. Yeah, I'll be honest, with the exception of the four ceiling, I hadn't looked at much of this series post Rise of Skywalker, knowing now what I didn't know then. There was another interesting thing that I thought was, I mean, it was kind of strange that they would just insert it into the end of the gunslinger. But they, somebody came and checked on the body of the assassin. Like that was, I'm blanking of her name. Ma Wing, was it Ma Wing Mei? Ming Na Wen. Ming Na Wen. Okay, cut yeah, out my May was the but... last. <laughs> May was the last name of her character in Agents of Shield. Right. When I heard that she was going to be in an episode, I got so excited, and I got really bummed that she was killed. There, yeah, that there wasn't more of her. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But then some. Then, but then we see some boots walking up to her body, and somebody is checking on her or doing something. And I, are we going to see that picked up in the next season? Who is this? Why bother? It was the same person who shot Chief Thomas at the end of uh, Agent Carter. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, it's all owned by Disney now. Waiting for a crossover. <laughs> there's, there's a crossover. I, I approve of this crossover. <laughs> Actually, I'm really glad that we will never have a crossover. It'd just be too weird. It really would be. I mean, <laughs> put it in a comic book. I'll be okay with it. I I don't understand why, but there we go. <laughs> yeah. But they have to say in the in the first intro panels, okay, none of this is canon, right, guys? And everybody says, right. Yeah, a comic I'd be fine. I mean, in a comic book, they crossed over Star Wars and Indiana Jones, so why not? No way. <laughs> no, seriously. It is Han and Chewie trying to escape from somebody, whoever, and uh, they did a blind hyperspace jump, takes them somewhere far, far away, and it, they land in the middle of uh, one of Earth's redwood forest. Except so like during cowboys the, and er, aliens. Yeah, yeah, well, it's like the eighteen hundreds, and. Uh, Han actually gets killed by Native Americans shooting him with arrows. And Chewie chases him off, and he lays Han down in the Falcon. And then, like, a hundred years later, here comes Indiana Jones with with short round climbing into the Falcon. (laughs) Apparently, he's there hunting after the mystery of Bigfoot. And and he has a throwaway line in it where he says, this is weird. I've never seen anything like it, not even Atlantis. (laughs) And, you know, he finds a Han's skeleton. He's like, I don't know, there's just something so strange and familiar about this. And they end up leaving. And you see Chewbacca watching them from a distance on a tree branch. Apparently he's Bigfoot now. (laughs) 
Well, there was also a uh, crossover of Star Trek and uh, Doctor Who. I enjoyed that. It was pretty fun. <laughs> Did you read that one? Yeah. <laughs> They've done a lot of Star Trek crossovers. They've done Star Trek and Doctor Who, Star Trek Planet of the Apes, Star Trek and the Green Lantern Corps, and even Star Trek and Transformers. And not just any Transformers, but it's the Star Trek, the animated series, crossing over with the 1980s Transformers cartoon. <laughs> oh, I Transformers and Transformers the movies, all my my favorite piece of trash. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but back, wow, how did we get down this rabbit hole? <laughs> I don't know. I <laughs> okay. back back to the uh, back to the gunslinger. I don't know why, even though it's never inferred or revealed, I got the impression that they were the boots of Moff Gideon. Like they were showing. Oh, interesting. Well, they were teasing that there's some big villain or there's someone mysterious who's following after the Mandalorian. Then when we see Moff Gideon and he's in his black imperial armor and cloak and self-folding TIE fighter, which honestly made me roll my eyes. I'm sorry. That was ridiculous. I kind of liked it. I thought it was, <laughs> they should fold like that so the thing can land and not have to like land on its wings. I, I, I don't know. Something about it bothered me. I don't know why. <laughs> I think because maybe it wasn't so much the TIE fighter itself folding up. It was his grandstanding entrance. It's how he treated that entire situation. And that entire scene bothered me. He's an imperial moth. He was the governor and subjugator of Mandalore. And here he is. With, he was awfully mustache twirly. Yes. He has ground superiority. He has air superiority. He's up against people who have a grand total of four blasters among them. And a magic space baby. And a magic space baby in a bar. <laughs> and yet he comes out and starts monologuing. And he's given no indication that he wants the baby alive. In fact, there's already been one assassination attempt on the baby in the episode that we've talked about before, Sanctuary. That bounty hunter wasn't there to capture. It was there to kill. And so here he is, a couple of hundred stormtroopers, a TIE fighter, and a pair of scout troopers who can't hit anything. And except the <laughs> baby in the back. I moments. love that. I loved that. We just watched that again last night, actually. It was great. <laughs> Something I got to say about behind the scenes of that episode, though. Yeah. They did not have enough props. Yes. Oh, you beat to, me to it. To film that. Uh, that there were not enough props to have that many stormtroopers on scene. And so what they did is they reached out to the local Stormtrooper 501st Legion, and mm -hmm. they had fans come in with their own movie-accurate armor. And, oh, my gosh, when I found that out, I just – I was so happy to hear that the fans mm -hmm. were literally making Star Wars. Yeah, that's that's treating your fan base right. And there's a picture out there of all of the – 501st Stormtroopers taking a big photo with all of the cast and everyone's smiling, everyone's happy, except for the Mandalorian. He kept his helmet on. Nice. I'm like, well done. Well, way to stick to character. <laughs> it's like the feel-good Star Wars story of the decade. So anyway, my big gripe with that is that you've got all of these happy-to-be-there Stormtroopers. You've got sky superiority. You've got it covered. <sighs> From a tactical standpoint, it was Stupid. <laughs> so anyway, there's my gripe. I'm done with it. 
And if that's the worst gripe you have about The Mandalorian, then well done, Mandalorian. Yeah, seriously. Has there been any word yet on when we're going to get season two? I haven't heard, but I haven't looked for it either. Insert background audio of Brian typing on his keyboard. (laughs) And Mike, too. Let's see. Uh, The Mandalorian season two has a release date of October 2020. Seven months away. Anything after? Yeah, I can deal with that. And anything after that is speculation. I'm sure we're going to talk about it more in the future. But for this episode, I think that'll wrap up our discussion of The Mandalorian. And that'll take us to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, what have you got for us? This week, I think that we're just taking the easy route with the question, why reinvent the wheel? I actually went looking online and saw that there are plenty of castles to buy in Scotland and England. And... um You know, I'm sure that the price is going to fall once the real estate market starts to collapse. So, so long as you can make it over to another uh, continent, somebody's already designed something that fortifies the doors, has no windows on the lower level, and is completely able to be sealed off from any invaders down below. And I'll bet you, none of those zombies has a siege engine. So, so long as you make it there, I think you're good. You're hitting me in all the right places. Is it true that many of my loved ones will probably die and or be eaten and I'll see their undead faces coming at me from down the street? Sad, yes, but I'm okay because I live in a castle. (laughs) James is king of his own castle. (laughs) I get to be in a castle. I'm 100% in support of this plan. And it sounds like that'll do it. Well, we want to thank you all for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, facebook.com slash geekatarms. And Mike, what's our Twitter handle? We are armsgeek on Twitter. And finally, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. See you, Space Cowboys. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. 